Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, a podcast that takes a sideways view at politics before I get confused and then spend ages complaining about why all politicians won't stop lying down all of the time. I'm Tiernan Duyeb and this week, like Prime Minister and only person in the world whose face stays exactly the same when she eats a lemon, Theresa May, I too have had a completely pointless cabinet reshuffle, though at least the old worn suits that I've failed to chuck out of mine are unlikely to ruin more than someone else's wedding photos. Yes, it seems Theresa May's New Year's resolution for 2018 was in with the old, out with the who. Her cabinet reshuffle was not so much as a revamp effort as just a vampiric one. Not so much a refresh as putting on yesterday's pants after disguising the smell by spraying them with a fragrance called last week's pants. Not so much a reshuffle as the croupier dropping all of their cards on the floor, then crying and then dealing out something that they found on their shoe instead. You get the idea. Rumours were spread that Theresa May would appoint a no-deal minister to the cabinet, but then left David Davis, the love child of a Toby Jug and some fog, as Brexit minister. This prompted many to wonder, is he a no-deal minister on account of him being so useless that that's the best he might manage? Similarly, jumble sale in a suit, Boris Johnson stayed on as Foreign Secretary, May Light Amber Rudd stayed as Home Secretary, and petrified salami Philip Hammond as Chancellor of the Exchequer, along with several other people who were terrible at their jobs, staying put being terrible at their jobs. However, if you weren't already convinced that Theresa May's big plan is just to appoint the least suitable person for their position, to the extent that her next pick is probably going to be Liam Neeson for Minister of Women, then she allayed any concerns of possible sensible choices being made by appointing Esther McVeigh, everyone's least favourite bargain basement succubus, as Secretary of State for Department of Work and Pensions. Yes, the woman who said food bank usage was right and that benefit sanctions teach people to look for work seriously is now in charge of welfare. I wonder if May's thinking was what could be more of an incentive to find work than the alternative being having to deal with McVeigh. While Theresa May was giving people appointments they shouldn't have, the NHS has been forced to cancel many they should have, as the health service was hit by the worst crisis on record. The Prime Minister apologised, saying that she knows it's frustrating, disappointing and difficult, to which many of us listening thought, OK, that's enough about the government, what about the NHS? Health Secretary Jeremy Hunt defended the crisis by saying it's that time of the year, which I hope means at the end of 2018, John Lewis will opt for a Christmas advert that just involves someone dying in a hospital corridor wishing for a bed before a friendly monster brings them some weak coffee and makes their year by rolling a dead person out of a bed that they've been in for a week. This could be, of course, to the soundtrack of Queens of the Stone Ages, 666, sung by Emily Sande. Still, though, it'll all be fine for the NHS because, you know what, Health Secretary and evil Gumby Jeremy Hunt was not only kept in his position but he was also given the added title of secretary for social care too because who knows if you're super shit at one job maybe just maybe fingers crossed you'll only be half as bad at two two wrongs make a right wing cabinet Apparently, Hunt refused to leave his position, and sadly, due to fucking horrible management of the NHS, it'll now be at least another month before he can be surgically removed. 
It is not just ministers that are being recycled this past week, but also hopefully plastic as well, after a new government pledge to end all avoidable plastic waste by 2042. I mean, plastic waste is a huge problem right now as millions of tonnes is dumped in the ocean every year, but by leaving it 24 years, you know, we can just make sure that all the sharks are definitely dead so it's really safe to go swimming again. Also, what is avoidable plastic rather than unavoidable plastic? Does it mean they can finally sack Michael Gove? Part of May's grand plan is to have plastic-free aisles in supermarkets, which will be then be quicker to get through than the other aisles. And I'm sure that in 2030, when the last blue whale is dying of plastic poisoning, it'll be relieved to think, ah, oh, well at least Steve and Jane from Bromley can get their loose aubergine five minutes quicker. In the US, President of America and balloon filled with semolina, Donald Trump has told journalists that he is the least racist person they have ever interviewed, although considering he only really does interviews with Fox News anymore, that is possible. These comments came after reports that during an Oval Office meeting, he referred to developing nations as shithole countries, which I guess you could take as a compliment considering how much of a piece of shit he is, which would make any shithole country his natural motherland. Speaking of actual shitholes, third-degree gravity victim Nigel Farage has said that he backs the idea of a second Brexit referendum, which, well, of course he does. It'd mean we'd have to see his soggy bread face all over television for weeks on end again. Meanwhile, Labour leader and only parliamentary representative from Donaldson's Dairy, Jeremy Corbyn, says his party doesn't back a second referendum, but judging by their overall lack of Brexit sans, this could just be because most would end up spoiling their ballots by scribbling an illegible squiggle somewhere between options while shouting about how they definitely know what they're doing. And in news no one cares about, UKIP leader and snagger the goblin in Lord of the Rings The Two Towers, Henry Bolton, has been forced to break up with his girlfriend because, you know, them kippers just can't stop leaving stuff. This was, though, due to his partner Joe Marnie sending a series of very, very racist texts. Though, let's be fair, it probably wasn't so much the content that Henry Bolton disagreed with, but more the fact she was using modern technology to do it. Lastly, the second biggest construction firm in the UK, Carillion, has gone into liquidation. The company have government contracts on schools, prisons, homes for military personnel, Battersea Power Station and are part of the joint rail venture HS2. 20,000 jobs are now at risk as well as all those projects, which means the government might now have to give public funding to save public services. I mean, what? Is this 2018 or, I don't know, a while back when things were nationalised and didn't just collapse on you mid-development? What's going on? Still, on the plus side, with this much liquid Carillion, we should be able to make the jump to warp speed and find our way home very soon. Hello and Happy New Year, if we can still say that. Can we? I don't know. There's not really a sort of official cut-off date for annual well-wishing, is there? I mean, there's definitely a point, like, you can't really do it in April, because by that point people go, oh, we know the year's shit now. I mean, it's 16 days in, uh, so I've mostly stopped saying Happy New Year, unless someone brings it up. I mean, there was a day last week where I had a bit of popcorn stuck in my teeth for about eight hours, and by the end of that I was thinking, do you know what? I think 2018 is probably going to be more of the same. But, hey, the podcast has returned, and that is happy and the crowd rejoiced um, and yes yeah, sorry uh, this was away for so long but how was I to know there'd be quite so much news while Partly Political Broadcast was away uh, what do you mean I've lived through 2015, 16 and 17 so I really should have got used to this endless cycle of shit by now alright alright but when prepping this week's show I spent ages going through absolutely everything I've missed thinking maybe I'll just do a bumper beginning of 2018 edition with bits about reanimated drowned corpse Steve Bannon and how he's been alternatively fired from Breitbart or how Trump's bigger nuclear button is actually a toy one White House staff installed for protection and actually it just makes a cow moo noise till he forgets what he was doing um, and then there was all the stuff about the MPs vote for a meaningful vote or how at least blue passports will match the colour of everyone's post-Brexit depression and then there was Alabama and everything else and all of that is now already old news and some of it is even last year so instead for this show that we've come back to, I've boiled things down to the past week or so's noise because, let's face it, no one wants a podcast that goes on so long it's 2019 by the time you've finished. Oh, and there'll be more stuff on Carillion next week once the story's developed a bit. So, phew! Hello to all you new listeners and subscribers, um, and I'm not sure if you came here via my appearance on Ramesh Ranganathan's excellent hip-hop Save My Life podcast, um, and if you didn't, go check that out, it was a lot of fun. Or maybe you just clicked something by accident, but your ears are welcome, new people. Um, and it was lovely and quite odd to see how many new subscribers the show gained while I wasn't releasing any episodes over Christmas. Is this a hint? Is the only way that this show can hit tens of thousands of listeners is by me just not doing any more? Hmm, please don't send 
send in your views. Anyway, thank you to Alan for his Patreon donation over the holes and to Mad Cyclist for upping theirs, which is super kind. And if you would like to send money my way to make this show better, or, I mean, if you want worse, uh, then please do. I mean, seriously, if you pay enough, I will happily make this show really awful by request. Uh, I'm really, I'm seriously that easy to buy. Um, either way, you can donate to patreon.com forward slash bro, or if you just want to do a one-off and buy me a very expensive coffee, aka uh, a coffee in London, uh, then you can do donations of £3 or more at ko-fi.com forward slash bro, and there's a little hyphen between the coat and the fee. Um, so thank you also to all of you who reviewed the show on iTunes over the holidays. We are now on Funfair, please! <laughs> One hundred reviews, yeah, and only one of them is at one star because somebody decided to sit through this show even though they hated it. How weird! Um, so if you haven't reviewed the show but you would like to, or you wouldn't like to, but you feel my constant asking on this show for reviews is finally puncturing your guilt shield, then do head to iTunes or Stitcher or Castface or Podbastard or any of your favourite podcast apps and please, please do that there. Right, um, teeny tiny little bit of admin this week, apart from all the usual admin, um, which is to give a little bit of a heads up about this podcast because that little holiday break is over and I do intend to keep rolling this podcast out as long as politics happens, which, considering the state of the world, may only be a few more months. But at some point in early March, if all things go to plan, I am becoming a dad to a tiny human being, uh, which is very, very exciting. Hugely exciting. I'm going to have a tiny little a tiny little me, um, hopefully with beard and everything, uh, regardless of if they're a boy or a girl. I don't, I don't know yet. We did try to find out, um, but during the scan, uh, they wouldn't let us see. They kept sort of closing their legs or holding their hand in front so we've decided it's a girl uh, who's very very woke um or it could be a boy who is playing with themselves either are very possible anyway look it's hugely exciting um but it does mean that there might be a sudden pause in this podcast uh when a tiny baby arrives and i'm spending a week working out how to juggle poo filled nappies and make crying stop and that is of course just caring for my own needs um anyway uh, we went to our second nct meeting last week uh, where i learned that apparently it's not funny suggesting that i bring comedy scissors for the cutting of the umbilical cord and treating it like the opening of a shop you know i declare this baby launched um not apparently not that funny anyway you live and learn so look um if there is one week in the next few months where all of a sudden you're like where is the bro- where's the podcast gone what's happened is because tiny do you has landed so now you know and i'll probably uh keep you post on this in the coming weeks i mean I, to, i'll be honest i'm hoping to get them running errands for the podcast and finding guests and making me tea all within about two weeks of being born because obviously that's how it works um but yeah i'll keep you posted who knows there may be a moment when this show has to take a sudden break um, also, on a very different level of importance, if you have Netflix, I highly recommend David Letterman's new show where he interviews Barack Obama for an hour. And look, I know Obama did some terrible things, but watching him talk just made me so nostalgic for a time when the US president could actually construct sentences and had more than two emotions. Uh, it's a very good watch. Right, on this week's show, I am talking to Dr. Phil Hammond. That's right, the good Phil Hammond, not the bad one. All about the NHS and its current crisis state. Plus, there is a little bit of New Year Brexit and a look at why it's not just because he attends eugenics meetings and does the sort of tweets that makes you think a 14-year-old boy was being a dick that mean Toby Young really, really shouldn't have been given the job as a non-exec board member for the Office for Students, even for the 30 seconds he was. Intrigued? No? Fair enough. In which case, here's this. I remember when I first got an iPod many years ago and I found the shuffle function to be hugely exciting. You know, what tune will it play next? What exciting banger will pop into my ears completely unaware this time? Only to be hugely disappointed as, again and again, it regularly just played my least favourite tracks from albums all the time. Seemingly forgetting about everything else that I'd put on there, uh, hours and hours of burning CDs until I needed something chilled, at which point it played the loudest track I had and then just made me feel sad. Anyway, this is obviously the blueprint on which Theresa May bases her cabinet reshuffles, as they are never anything anyone wants, probably not even her, but instead the same old awful strains again and again. I'm not going to go through all the appointments she made, because some of them are a tad pointless, like Sajid Javid's housing name extension that means little other than this pointless addition will annoy communities and councils too, like the conservatory idea that it is. Instead, it's worth looking at appointments like David Cork, a man who looks like a thunderbird made of dough, to the position of Justice Secretary. 
Secretary. This is the third Justice Secretary appointment in a year, which doesn't really put any concerns to rest that May doesn't take the justice sector seriously. Cork's voting record has been more often than not against policies that promote equality and human rights, which isn't exactly what you want for someone in his new role. As Work and Pension Secretary, he pushed forward changes to the personal independence payment that made it harder for people with certain disabilities to claim, and he's defended the shit shambles that is universal credit several times as a good system which has got better. So two untruths in one statement. Let's hope that he hasn't heard that justice is blind in case he decides to treat it with the same level of compassion he does other people with disabilities. Meanwhile, the new Secretary for the Department of Work and Pensions is Esther McVeigh, who is most well known for saying really awful things about people on benefits as well, so it's strange to now give her that very job. It's like letting the evil kid on your street who tortures pets run your zoo. But McVeigh got the position after Justin Greening turned it down, and while having McVeigh in the DWP is a really sadistic move from May, it does mean that Greening will now be an anti-Brexit MP on the backbenches where she can vote however she likes, yet again weakening whatever iota of power May had with her own party. But now, in Greening's old role of Education Secretary is relative unknown Damien Hines, and there are already worries about him having preferential treatment for faith schools after the Catholic Church gave him a £5,000 donation towards having an intern in his office. The Church did say they sponsor a lot of interns, so I guess we just have to take that as gospel. And in Damien Green's old role is David Lidlington, just without Damien Green's old title of Secretary of State. So instead, Lidlington is just Minister for the Cabinet Office, which sounds a lot like stay-at-home dad. Then we have Jeremy Hunt's added responsibility, which according to insiders is mainly because Greg Clark refused to step down as business secretary, which is the position May wanted Hunt to take, so that meant he stayed put as well. Davis and Johnson refused to change too, and the only one who then refused to change and then left the cabinet entirely when she was refused was Greening. So May's big reshuffle overall involved 17 cabinet ministers staying exactly where they are. Shuffle. Three ministers were moved sideways. Shuffle. Three, including Greening, resigned. Shuffle. And only four new ministers were given cabinet posts. So what does this all mean? Well, it means once again, like the snap election or her conference speech, or well, every decision she's ever made since being prime minister, May's attempts to strengthen her hand have instead given her a big comedy foam finger where everyone can see that it does make a point while being completely useless at grasping anything. Labour did also have a reshuffle which brought current party star Laura Pidcock to the front bench despite her comments on saying she can never be friends with a Tory, which hey, I think is unfair as Tory spelling seems alright. Clive Lewis has returned to the front bench after being cleared of sexual harassment claims and after he was caught on video saying get on your knees bitch to a male colleague as part of a momentum game show event at the Brighton Labour conference. And that was condemned due to his language and just how weird it is to see MPs having fun and acting all human. Also of note with Labour's reshuffle is Lincoln MP Karen Lee, who has become Shadow Fire Minister. Now, I don't know a lot about Karen Lee, but I do think that Shadow Fire Minister is the best title you could have in Parliament, and I really, really hope she's in charge of some sort of secret ninja sect who keeps demons at bay, or I'm going to be very, very disappointed. This year, the NHS turns 70 years old, which probably means, in the eyes of the Conservatives, that it can finally retire now that they've worked it to death on low wages. There is, of course, also every chance that, as it's now 70, the NHS will just vote for the Conservatives to do exactly that, and then it'll back Brexit. But hey, fingers crossed. This winter's NHS crisis is by all accounts the worst that it's ever seen, with 55,000 non-urgent appointments cancelled, 90,000 patients being stuck in ambulances waiting to get into A&E, patients lying in corridors due to a lack of beds, and medical students being asked to volunteer in emergency wards despite their lack of experience. And what with a catchy dramatic theme tune and some sort of helicopter crash, this could all be a very, very exciting TV show, is kind of horrific when you realise that that's the invaluable health service that the whole country relies on. Of course, it's not for doctors and nurses not trying. They are working crazy hard, but when you're underfunded, have Brexit making getting staff harder and have one of those wacky waving inflatable arm flailing tube men as your health secretary, then things will fall apart. This isn't an easy problem to fix though, even if the government suddenly, for some weird reason, decided to actually fund the NHS properly rather than say sorry or blame a time of year that happens every year. So this week, I thought it'd be really good to get an expert on the NHS to explain exactly why we've hit this crisis now and what should be done about it, even if it probably won't be. I spoke to Dr Phil Hammond, and as I've mentioned before, he is the good Phil Hammond, not the bad one, and you might well have seen him on that television in BBC Two's Trust Me, I'm a Doctor, or appearing on Have I Got News For You or even Countdown. 
Phil is a qualified GP working with children and adolescents with chronic fatigue syndrome, also known as ME. But as well as working as a doctor, he's written several comedy shows about health, the NHS and being a doctor, all of which he's toured and taken to the Edinburgh Fringe, as well as writing a sitcom for Radio 4 about GPs struggling with NHS reforms. He regularly presents a show on Radio Bristol, writes for Private Eye and is about to continue a tour of his show Dr Phil's Health Revolution before starting his new show Happy Birthday NHS in the West Country. Phew, and you thought doctors were overworked already. I really enjoyed talking with Phil, but I should apologise as it was my first interview back post-Christmas and I am so, so sloppy as a question asker. I did that thing several times where I started asking a question and halfway through couldn't remember what words are because I hadn't spoken to anyone for weeks. Um, Luckily, though, Phil was brilliantly informative and very, very funny as well, so I'm sure you will enjoy. Here is Dr Phil Hammond. How do you feel about Jeremy Hunt's uh, new title that was given to him this week? Um, because personally, I sort of feel like he wasn't good enough at one job, and now to be given two feels uh, doesn't feel good. It seems slightly bizarre that someone who's overseen the worst decline, probably in uh, uh, NHS performance, has been reappointed to the same job five times and then been given an extra job. Uh, the principle of joining health and social care is a good one. Um, In Scotland, in Northern Ireland, in Wales, they try to merge health and social care without having an internal market to screw it all up. So actually the idea of having somebody oversee health and social care isn't bad. The question is whether it should be Jeremy Hunt. I think it's quite interesting if you look at 70 years of the NHS, Nye Bevan, everybody's hero, was a obviously working class mining background. He lost his dad from pneumoconiosis. He lost three of his siblings at a young age saw the appalling uh, damage that poverty did to people's health. Uh, Fast forward 70 years, and we have Jeremy Hunt, who's sort of a son of someone very high up in the Admiralty. He's a cousin of the Queen. He went to Charterhouse. He went to Oxford. Almost poles apart. We have a very posh person. Um, But Nye Bevan is so inspiring for people because he came from a working-class family with a terrible stutter, leaving school at 13 to rise to be one of the most powerful politicians. So... Although medicine's made a huge amount of progress in 70 years, I'm not sure medical politics has made quite so much progress. No, it's always um, it's one of those sort of clips I always think of. And I know you can't, you know, I know everyone makes mistakes, as it were, but I always remember that clip of Jeremy Hunt when he was culture secretary um, before the Olympics ringing a bell and the bell flies off and hits yeah, yeah. in the background. And I always just feel like that sums up everything he does. <laughs> well, partly that. And, and if you go back to the history of why he got that job, if you remember, there was the... Uh, the, here at the inquiry into insider trading at the B Sky B, and uh, when he was culture secretary, one of his special advisors had been feeding information to Murdoch or whatever, and he had to be shifted from that job. And the health is a bit like Northern Ireland; it's, it's rarely given to someone as a reward. Mm. Um, I, th- I don't know whether Jeremy Hunt was a fag at public school or something, but he seems to enjoy punishment. The worse he is at his job, the more he enjoys doing it and he bounces out with his nhs badge saying isn't it marvelous this is the job i love even if the the ship is burning around him and it's obviously sinking so there must be some slightly say the masochistic thing going on in his head i would think it's well what i was uh you know he's he's just had this appointment and that's that follows uh, or this sort of extra appointment as it were uh that follows we've had now the the worst sort of nhs winter crisis in some time i think it was fifty five thousand non-urgent appointments that have been cancelled um how you know is this is this all a, a funding issue where we're at now because uh, theresa may bizarrely said that cancelling appointments was part of a plan which i don't know what plan that was but why why are we here now it's always very complicated it's like a a domino effect we're here partly if we want to wind all the way back to uh, the financial crisis uh, we knew that health and public services were going to take a hit for this because we've all had to bail out the bankers but back in 2009-2010 you know any any large organization that knew it was going to take a big financial hit would have kept its existing structures, it would have battered down the hatches, and it would have focused absolutely everything on the front line, keeping patients safe, keeping staff okay. What we did, in as, as well as the financial crisis, Andrew Lansley introduced this ridiculously vainglorious set of reforms in the Health and Social Care Act, which, which was the last thing that we needed. We didn't want to build on the marketization of Tony Blair and new labor and splinter and fragment services further. And everyone complained about it, absolutely everyone. It's my one and only appearance on Question Time was to have a go at Lansley and say, this is ridiculous, we need to join up services. 
So this has been a long time coming. It's the, the car crash of, of slowing down of funding. You know, normally, even under Thatcher, we had almost 4% growth in real times funding year on year. And we've gone to a trickle. We've gone to around 1% over the last uh, seven or eight years. And it will trickle down even further coming up to 2020. And alongside that, we've got people living longer than ever before. But also, we haven't addressed the issue of poverty. So a lot of healthcare resources are taken up by people with multiple complex illnesses they have. Diabetes and dementia, they come in with malnutrition and hypothermia and dehydration, as well as their flu. Uh, and that causes huge strain. So there's a number of things we haven't addressed. Cuts in social care, cuts in benefits also make people ill. And they then fall back on the safety net of the NHS. So to say it's just winter pressures due to a bit of extra Australian flu is nonsense. Although every time the flu is nasty, and this one may yet be an epidemic, it may be nasty, clearly it causes more deaths and creates extra pressure on the service. But you can't just wipe it off as a bit of Australian flu. It's, it dates all the way back to 2010, I would say. So is it... Because one of the things that um, I always sort of find hard to counter is the government keeps saying, oh, but we are putting funding into the NHS, and I know it's not enough, but why is it not... In, is, is it because medical uh, costs have gone up? And as you say, there's people are coming in with more issues due to other austerity things. Why, why is this money that they're putting They are in? putting a lot of money into the NHS, and they say they're putting more year on year, which is technically true. But they're probably not putting in more per head of the population. So the population has increased uh, uh, quite dramatically. I think between 2003 and 2015... The population of England increased by 10% from 49.9 million to 54.8 million. The number of people aged over 85 has increased by nearly 40%. So if you look at that particular demand, we're not matching that with funding. Yes, we're putting more in, but we're not putting enough in. Um, I think there are issues that we spend the money wisely in wasting money on continuous reform and marketization and putting things out to tender and then having to re-tender and all the money that goes to management consultants and lawyers. I mean, the market system has been hugely wasteful. But I think the bottom line is the NHS is under pressure because it's a success. When it was founded in 1948, half of us died before the age of 65. Terrible illnesses, you know, loads of infectious diseases would kill people in childhood. And now one in three, three people will live to 100. The person who lives to 150 may already have been born. It's probably not you or me, but the point is, if people are living longer and longer with conditions that previously killed them, it costs more. So I think there's a discussion to be had around the end of life and whether we should keep intervening with people right into their 90s and give them chemotherapy and surgery. I don't think we just do that as well as some other countries. But I think the bottom line is people are living longer. And so the NHS is a success. Uh, and rather bizarrely, if it was a market system, it would be really rich and wealthy. But it's not. So every time it's a success and people live longer, it, it takes more of the funding. That's that's quite a hard catch-22 situation. And if you continue to help people to live longer, then it's going to end up needing yeah. more and more funding. Does that then mean there will be a point where it's unsustainable? Or is it still mainly unsustainable now purely because the government are you know, well, selling bits off to privatisation, which aren't then putting any money back I, into tax system, etc. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't particularly think that's helped. I mean, with my evidence-based hat on, you know, if you said to me, here's a private company that can deliver a better service for the same money without destroying neighbouring NHS services, I'm not against that. I'm not against innovation. I'm just saying, where's the evidence? So they introduce all these bloody reforms without evaluating them. So if it was a new drug you were introducing, you'd have to say, well, here's a proper scientific evaluation. Here's how we've piloted. Here's how we've proven that the Health and Social Care Act worked or, you know, Ken Clark's purchaser-provider split worked or new Labour's blah, blah, blah worked. But they don't evaluate it. So we never really know with these political battles. But I do think the bit we're missing is that we still have very high levels of poverty in this country. And we know that poor people not only die 10 years earlier than rich people, but they have 20 more years of disease-laden living. So they have chronic diseases, often three or four of them, that create huge demands on the NHS. So I don't think we'll ever solve the problem of the NHS while we have such high levels of poverty, which is why the cuts in public health spending particularly and the cuts in benefits and the cuts in all the other things are so counterproductive because if you make people poor, you make people sick and then they demand the NHS far more. Sure, and I guess that's part of where the all the, all the recent issues with lack of funding in social care have come in as well yes. because when, that's put even more pressure on the NHS to keep people in for longer yeah. and there's nowhere else for them to go. And... I, I mean, I have some sympathy with Theresa May in that she tried to address the social care funding thing at the election. She did it in a clumsy way because it was a snap election that hadn't been thought through and the whole dementia tax bitter... 
that, you know, I, as somebody who's reasonably well off, don't expect to leave my house to my kids if I live a long time and have high care costs. So there has to be some way of recouping some money to pay for social care. If you don't want to do it through income tax, then people like me, who are reasonably wealthy, should pay a big old death tax and put that in there. I, for me, that's absolutely fine. And we have to somehow, probably with cross-party agreement, come up with a sensible way of saying, look, the NHS is under strain, but social care is really falling apart and we need to put money in. So either people who have big fat pensions should give, you know, 20, 30 grand when they retire out of their pension pot towards future social care costs, or we take it off after death. But somebody has to say something sensible about that or it really will crumble. Sure. And it's because uh, um, the Centre of Policy Studies just sort of suggests that they do this big Royal Commission inquiry into future of NHS, and I believe it's into social care as well. Mm. Um, do you think... Because, I mean, what we're already discussing is that there's a lot that needs to be looked into in order to how kind of make it all sustainable. Do you think that a Royal Commission inquiry is a good <laughs> idea? <laughs> I mean, that Historically, was we've had these inquiries, and they're only a good idea if people take notice of them. They're a classic political ruse for kicking things into the long grass. I mean, the Tory tactic generally is, is pretty big stuff, I guess, having Theresa May and Jeremy Hunt apologise so openly, because they were supposed to be blaming it all on Simon Stevens the chief executive of NHS England. He was the one who was supposed to fall on his sword if it all went tits up at winter. But nobody wants his job and nobody wants Jeremy Hunt's job, so they're all staying in post. But the Royal Commission will just, you know, go on and on. The Tories generally, they just bang a few billion in and kick it down the road until the next crisis. What actually we need is cross-party consensus. So all parties need to get together and say, here's a long-term funding settlement for health and social care that we all buy into and we will raise the money through taxes or whatever to fund it. So you've got cross-party support. So the NHS and social care knows how much money it's getting over the next five or ten years. Then you have to inquire into how best to spend that money without wasting it. And that has to be based on evidence rather than ideology. So if so-and-so says, we think outsourcing everything to Virgin is a good idea, I say, show us the evidence that that has worked. And that's been a good use of very precious public resources. So I think the scientific method, you know, when the NHS was founded, people were getting their limbs blown off in the war. Now we can artificially transplant hands and faces and do amazing things. So the scientific method actually works very well if you want to improve progress. And we need to apply the scientific method to the politics of the NHS so people take evidence-based decisions and actually pilot things and prove they work to, to avoid wasting vast sums of public money. Because that, to me, is the biggest waste. In the 31 years I've been in the NHS, the continuous untested reforms have wasted billions. They've stuffed up the front line and they've done everyone's head in. So I don't suddenly want to go into another huge commission that, that says, oh, God, we're going to do this major reform if it isn't properly tested. Sure. I mean, it's, it's, uh, my mother-in-law works in um, a radiology department at a big hospital. And, uh, and in fact, someone else told me recently the same, that they both have uh, an issue in their department where if they don't meet their targets, they're then yeah. fined. Yeah. And that doesn't that feels like an absolute reverse thinking to me because then you reduce the amount of money they've got so then they won't reach the target again. Yeah. Surely if they're in need of money yes. or they're missing targets, they need more fun that's baffling to me that's always happened and has always happened. we used to new labor were really quite stalinist and aggressive it's really interesting when the nhs was founded the biggest opponents were not the conservatives although they weren't fans of it it was the doctors and the doctors didn't want um to lose their private income and they didn't want to be slaves of the state they thought god if we all work for this huge state system we'll all be slaves to it um and now, of course, the strongest defenders of the NHS are doctors. But the side effects of being an employee of the state is that if you get a, 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 an administration that brutally imposes targets, shuts up whistleblowers, says you hit your targets or else or finds you, you've got no escape from it because you're stuck in that system. Targets can be intelligent. So a small number of intelligent targets that the staff agree to and they're motivated and inspired to hit them is fine. But enforcing stupid, simplistic, one-dimensional targets and then fining people is just nonsense. But it's the kind of thing politicians do when they panic, when they want to produce a set of figures before the next election. Sure, I mean, it's impossible to sort of create targets when it's based on people, yeah. and uh, you know, which is constantly variable uh, and very difficult to predict. I mean, I to be fair, what they're trying to do at the moment, there's a big hoo-ha about something called accountable care organisations. It's mm. stupid to pick that name because accountable care organisations were pioneered in America run by private insurers. So if you're trying to counter the conspiracy that the NHS is being sold off to the private sector or the truth that it is, you're an absolute idiot if you say we're going to introduce accountable care organisations. However, part of the stuff they do, which is to get everybody to collaborate 
So to get public sector bodies to collaborate, health and social care, and work together so people don't fall between the cracks in services is a good idea. You have fewer targets and more collaboration. So I get slightly frustrated. Some of the ideas coming out of the service are good, and I know lots of people on the front line are working their butts off trying to join up services within their communities and, and get more for the money. But the danger is, because of the reforms, uh, the Tories started, Labour accelerated, and then Lansley put the cherry on top, you come up with these new ways of working, but they have to be put out to tender to the market. So the danger is the NHS and, and local authorities will put in all this work creating these wonderful new bodies, then they're put out to tender, and then the Virgins or the Care UKs or the you know big American companies swoop down and win the contracts. So that's the big risk, I think, facing the NHS in the immediate future in terms of its reforms. The good ideas may just be jumped on by the private sector and taken away. So you'd have the private sector running accountable care organisations. You might as well outsource health authorities or outsource NHS England and having, you know, private companies running the whole show. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. And we'll be back with Dr. Phil in a minute. But first, if you hadn't heard of professional opinion shitter Toby Young before the last few weeks, you were, well, very lucky. Because the best way I could describe the man is like if Voldemort possessed an outie belly button. There's every chance you'd briefly caught him on one of the news shows before, looking like if Phil Mitchell had been constipated for weeks, and at the time he'd probably have been complaining about, say, oh, Generation Snowflake are so easily offended and need safe spaces, before then crying about how none of his friends like him or would go to his stag do and how everyone's so mean to him. Then, over the past two weeks, if that was all you'd heard about him or you hadn't heard about him before, you probably heard on the news how the Minister for Universities and Science, Joe Johnson, you know, the previously shedded skin of Boris Johnson now wrapped around a stick, appointed Young to the position of one of the non-executive members of the board of the new office for students. Which sounded great, right? Because, you know, he's called Toby Young and young people are students, so makes sense. But then, uh-oh, it turned out that he kept shouting awful things about boobs on Twitter and then he lied about his university qualifications and then he went to talks by white supremacists and generally, overall, it turned out that he shouldn't be anywhere near a big government position, let alone children, let alone his own children, and so he resigned. Now look, I could just wang on for ages for the next 10 minutes calling Toby Young various names that I think he deserves, like arse potato and such, and I could also relay all of his awful tweets, and I could go into all the details about the really disturbing eugenics seminar he attended, but all of those have been fairly well reported every day for several weeks. But what hasn't been reported in all of this Toby Young story, and what was generally ignored when calling his new job into question, is his role both in the world of free schools and also his directorship at the New Schools Network, and why all of that should really, really make you query how he was about to be handed a big fat paycheck to basically boost his own ideological plan. So, firstly, let's go way back to 2009, when the New Schools Network was set up as a charity by Rachel Wolfe, former advisor to Boris Johnson and Michael Gove, everyone's least favourite double vent act. The idea was to support groups who wanted to set up free schools in England akin to the charter schools they have in the US or Sweden, i.e. publicly funded but doesn't work under the curriculum and can be privately run. A bit like, you know, Riggs in Lethal Weapon. Well, if he was privately run. Okay, that analogy doesn't work. 
The charity, New Schools Network, is 86% funded by the Department of Education in order to help them roll out their free school ideology, but they have been accused several times of a lack of transparency over the rest of their donors. Loads of interested groups at the time in 2009 signed up in order to run their own free schools, and one of those people was Toby Young, a friend of Gove's. You know, if either of those people actually have those things. And when the Conservative government led by David Cameron came in, they launched 24 free schools by 2011. Toby Young was CEO and trustee of one of those schools, the West London Free School, for which he got about £60,000 a year plus £15,000 pensions, all from the New Schools Network, all funded by the Department of Education. Toby Young then stepped down from this CEO job in 2016 after complaining that he didn't know how difficult it would be to run a school because, hey, who knew, eh? I mean, I don't know about you, I thought schools were just telling kids to shut up and making them wear stupid ties, but no, there's actual stuff they have to learn and things you have to do, like buy small chairs. Weird. But before he resigned, between 2013 and 2016, he opened three primary schools in West London. And then, after he resigned in 2016, he was appointed director of the New Schools Network charity and was paid £90,000 to £100,000 salary per year from the Department of Education, which is no small fee. There were very big questions at the time about Toby Young's impartiality in this role, being that he was previously the CEO of various schools that had already received a lot of funding from the New Schools Network, including in the year up to the end of August 2016, £10.1 million of funding to the West London Free School by the charity to promote a classically liberal education. Yeah. That sounds well impartial, right? You know, teaching kids the conservative libertarian ways of economic freedoms at the expense of civil liberties. I mean, that crosses all sides of the political spectrum, right? Yes, right. There were also concerns about an article he wrote in 2012 complaining about schools having to be inclusive with wheelchair ramps, which he said were ghastly. Which is a stupid thing to say, because if anything, wheelchair ramps smooth out architecture, something real nice, and are far more inviting than stairs, especially if you're in a wheelchair, or, like me, you're horribly lazy. But despite all this, Young promised that he would definitely, definitely be non-partisan as director of the New Schools Network. And then, one of his first moves as director was to call for business leaders with no teaching experience whatsoever to be appointed as school heads. Boom! Non-partisan for the children. Several issues about free schools have become apparent since they started in 2011. In 2014, it was reported that the Ofsted failure rate of free schools was three times higher than state schools. Then last year, analysis showed that free schools helped boost the richest parts of the country while neglecting the poorest, and that nearly £140 million of government money has gone to free schools that have either closed, partially closed, or didn't even open in the first place. But still, in the spring budget last year, the government gave another £320 million for them. And Toby Young is getting £100,000 of taxpayers' money every year, plus a pension, in order to help investors open more. The Office for Students is an independent but government-approved body that merges the Higher Education Funding Council and Office for Fair Access. And had Toby Young got this job as part of the board, he would have helped promote fair access to higher education, and he again promised to be non-partisan during all that, despite his own politics. And so, you have to ask, should someone who has an interest in eugenics, tweets sexist and homophobic abuse and lies about their qualification be in a role that looks at helping those from deprived backgrounds into education? No, definitely not. But also, if Young wasn't such a blatant idiot with his aggressive opinions, what if he hadn't done any tweets that anyone would have noticed? Would anyone have questioned why someone who is being well-funded by the government to fund his own interests under a non-partisan guise that actually promoted a classical liberal ideology for children and only benefited richer areas should now be given more money by the government to be impartial with higher education access? Not in my book, and my book is considerably more enjoyable than any of Toby Young's books, and all it says is Toby Young is an arse potato in big letters over and over again. And now, back to Dr. Phil. I, I don't really hear much about privatisation. I hear a lot about privatisation through social media and mm. through doctors and people in the NHS, but so little about it is reported uh, in the news. I mean, how much of the NHS is now privatised? Well, very little in terms of overall, very little, because there's no money in universal care. So the reason American companies or, or insurers generally make money because they cherry-pick, and so... You know, they operate on the people with one illness and who are otherwise fit and well who recover. If you're providing universal health care, including to the, the most needy, it's very hard to make a profit out of it. So Circle famously took over Hinchingbrook Hospital in Cambridgeshire and couldn't make a profit out of it. They used all their fancy management consultant and their new models of care. But because they had to provide universal care, it wasn't profitable. Had they, they been able to close down the emergency department and stop doing obstetrics and all the other things you get sued for, they probably could have made a profit. 
So I think private companies have realised they can't make much money out of universal care in hospitals. They think they can make a bit of money out of community care. So Virgin have hoovered up a huge amount of community care contracts and they do sexual health, elderly care, young people's care, end-of-life care. And there has been a big growth in, in those contracts going to the private sector. But in absolute terms, it's still a fairly small portion of the NHS. The point is, because of various reforms, the chance is there for any private company to bid for any contract when it comes up if they think there's a profit in it. So these huge accountable care contracts, which will cover whole populations, health and social care, for 10 years, uh, private companies may finally say, actually, that's a really attractive contract to bid for. And then the people who worry about this sort of thing say, well, if a private company is involved in health and social care, they might start introducing more charges or insurance or whatever, and will we be able to stop them? So that's the debate going on at the moment. So not much in absolute terms in privatisation, but it's the fastest growing element of, of, you know, contracts put out are generally being run by the private sector now. And it's part of the problem as well, that because I assume those private companies are then subsidised by NHS funding. Does that they get money from sort of taxpayer funding, as it were? Well, it is. It's, the, it's our money that goes to them. So the argument is, the Conservative argument, is that provided the system remains um, free to access and tax-funded, it is a public system. So it could be entirely provided by the private sector. Virgin could run absolutely everything. It would still be a public service. The other argument is that if you outsource significant services to the private sector, you're outsourcing power and money uh, to shareholders and people whose vested interests may be profit rather than universal care. And you're taking that power and decision-making away from the NHS. And depending on what your definition of privatisation is, you're never going to get two people to agree on it. But the point is that the NHS is always a safety net for the private sector. So when things go wrong in the private sector, the NHS has to pick up the pieces. If there's an emergency that suddenly needs intensive care on the NHS, uh, the, then we pick up the pieces. So uh, I, it's not a very symbiotic relationship at the moment. Um, but it's interesting that most of the private sector work is done by NHS consultants um, in their spare time. That was how Bevan got the consultants on board. He said, look, you don't have to work full-time in the NHS, you can work part-time, and then you can have the rest of the time in Harley Street or Bupa or wherever you want to go. So you have this unusual position of consultants serving two masters. Uh, there isn't an awful lot of private general practice at the moment, but the growth of lots of these companies like uh, GPs for me or EasyJet GPs or whatever, Uber GPs where you can phone up and get a face-to-face -face <laughs> consultation on your smartphone. <laughs> Babylon, there's the other one, Babylon. Um, but people get very excited about technology, but technology doesn't wipe asses. You know, your smartphone app is at no use to you if you're dying at the end of a corridor in the NHS at the moment or your ambulance isn't coming for you. So technology has its place, but it's not going to solve the major problems at the moment, I don't think. No, you can't can't quite download medicine yet uh, to your phone. That would be the next step. Um, but I, I guess all those things are still a lot more attractive, though. It, you know, the public sector pay has been capped for ages now yeah. if you're a doctor or a nurse and you've got the option of some work that actually pays properly that would be a far more attractive proposition well it's interesting i do i mean i do a lot of public speaking and i did one the other day it was an oncology conference where most of the oncologists the top oncologists in the country cancer specialists and most of them at this conference were doing private practice and they said yes the money is better but b i have longer consultations i can practice the standard of medicine I wished for when I trained. It's not like a right. cattle market. It's not mayhem. I actually have a, an hour-long consultation as opposed to 15 minutes. Uh, I, I can get people radiotherapy and chemotherapy a bit quicker, and I can get them better quicker. So, yes, I'm being paid more for it, but I'm also practicing a standard of medicine I enjoy. And I sort of have some sympathy for that argument, uh, and I can see why they do it. I've never done private medicine, but I can understand why people do. Sure, because it's a job you get into because you're passionate about it and yeah. you're able to actually do it properly, that must be quite a thrill. Well, that's the, I think the biggest... When you think about stress, I mean, stress amongst NHS staff is not really talked about, but it's a huge problem. And one of the things they talk about is that all these young doctors and nurses come onto the wards and they have a vision of what it'll be like being a doctor or nurse, being able to do your best. I mean, they know it's stressful, but being able to do your best for patients. And it's when... You're in a situation now where you can't practice a standard of medicine that would be acceptable for your friends and family. You crack up, basically. So there have been some quite tearful doctors on TV recently, very moving casualty consultants, saying, I can't practice a standard of medicine that would be acceptable for my friends and family. It just simply isn't safe. And that's when it rots your soul because you really are trying your best and you just don't have the resources or staffing or capacity to provide a safe service. And you know people are being harmed or dying unnecessarily 
And you've got to live with that. And, and that's why people are taking breaks from medicine and burning out because they're having to cope with these sort of battleground conditions. I mean, I remember when uh, the junior doctor strike was happening and sort of speaking to junior doctors was saying, you know, we just want to do our job properly. Yeah. We, do it, we don't want to be exhausted. And that's what it's about. Well, that, and, was the uh, big, that was the big lie. And that's actually Hunt's biggest problem is he's lost the trust of the workforce. You know, you can be great at PR. You can do a convincing apology, for, at least for some people on television. But he's lost the trust of junior doctors because this was branded as money-grabbing junior doctors wanting a bit more on a Saturday. You know, nobody goes into medicine to make lots of money, certainly not in the <laughs> NHS. It's not, the, the, you know, they want, most junior doctors, most NHS staff would give their left arm to work in humane working conditions where they weren't dying from work-related stress and they could deliver a standard of care that was acceptable to their friends and family. That's all they want. And they warned us that this crisis was going to happen and they were branded as communists and troublemakers by the Daily Mail and they were absolutely bang on. But it also gives me a sense of encouragement because although Hunt, in effect, imposed a contract, he said he wasn't going to, but it was the only contract on offer, he's politicised a whole generation of junior doctors like Rachel Clark, various others, who are just brilliant and articulate and unafraid and take to social media and I think are helping to educate people about the real state of the NHS because doctors opposed it when it was founded, but doctors now are the ones who can save it by telling the public, this is what you get for your money if you want more. You need kinder, humane working conditions and more money going into health and social care. And do you think now we've now we've had this crisis? Uh, you know, what do you, do you th something's going to happen? Something's got to happen to change, hasn't it? I mean, the government can't just keep going. I don't. I don't know is the answer. I mean, to be fair, they've realised they're not saying it out public, but they've realised Lansley's Health and Social Care Act was a disaster. And this fragmentation and continuously retendering every few years has just stopped joining up care. So they can't actually stand up and say publicly this is a disaster, but they've sort of realised that. But but to reverse it and to stop the tendering and to protect, you know, these new joined up health and social care organisations, whatever they are, they probably need more legislation to make them public bodies. And the trouble is that there isn't any legislative time for that because of Brexit. So it's a bit of a fine line at the moment. They're trying to do stuff under the radar, but the private companies may come along and say, you can't just award these contracts to public bodies. We want a slice of it. So that's one challenge they've got. And the other is whether Labour wants to work collaboratively with the Conservatives to come up with some cross-party consensus, because that's how they're going to win the next election, rather ironically, by the NHS collapsing at everyone's feet and people saying it's time for change. So there's often a reluctance amongst parties to collaborate over the NHS because it's such a political weapon, particularly come election time. And they fear that if they collaborate, they'll be seen as part of the problem. So much as I'd like to depoliticise the NHS and base it on evidence and empathy and, and getting the best value for money, I can't really see it happening. Oh, well, that's cheery. Um, <laughs> I, well, it's, well, it's something I wanted to ask you because you've got your so you've got a tour coming up yeah. at the end of February, and you're doing uh, one of your older shows, I believe, at the end of February in Bristol, followed by uh, your tour of Health Revolution, which is sort of two shows combined, isn't it? Health um, Revolution's been going for a while, but I'm writing a new right. one called Happy Birthday NHS at the moment. Oh yes, unfortunately, cool, it's and that's going funny. on from. Uh, it's, it's my March, most passionate sorry. and probably least funny show at the moment because <laughs> I'm really struggling now. As I've moved, uh, as you do as you grow up, you move from knob gags uh, to politics and social comment, and it's not as funny. When I look at some of the stuff I did years ago in Struck Off and Die, we did some really dark, very black, bleak stuff that would get me struck off. I'd be as you know a modern day Toby Young now. I suspect you can't say that sort of stuff now, and uh, I could never stand for any political office because people would go back and look at the early Struck Off and Die shows and go, "Geez, that was black." <laughs> so uh, it's hard. But I, I mean, I've been going around the country for ages. Just you know, I wasn't surprised by the result of the last election because I go around the country and every audience I meet are worried about health and social care, and they say, "Look, I'd be happily pay a bit more tax or a bit more national insurance to fund it better." Um, and I just like a political party that's going to do that for me. Uh, and I think that's the abiding. So that's part of the reason there's a political end to my shows. But I do, I try my hardest to make them funny, even though there's not an awful lot about, you know, dying at the end of a casualty queue that's very funny at the moment. Yeah, well, that's it. I, I, that's, that is what I wanted to sort of ask you about because I mean, I, I write political humour all the time, and there are moments, especially lately, where I just go, I don't know what is left here that you could sort of wrangle a laugh from. So it's quite, yeah, quite it's, bleak, yeah. As I've got older, also, I've got less cruel, and I think that's, you know, because I still practice as a doctor, I don't feel I can say things incredibly cruel about Jeremy Hunt or whatever because. I'm a compassionate person and I don't like cruelty. So that's another angle. I love the stuff that Frankie Boyle does and I think he's extraordinary. 
Um, but I can't really do it and still exist uh, in a role as a doctor. So I'm slightly limited in that extent. But I sort of, I sort of manage it. People turn out. I get bums on seats, not just you know, countdown viewers. I had loads of young junior doctors come to my last set of tours. So it's nice that people are there and they seem to like um, politically engaging, thoughtful comedy. So fingers crossed. <laughs> and what's uh, the Happy Birthday NHS show? I guess it's uh, like it says on the tin. It's about the seventieth. It's it is. So I'm going to look at the birth of the NHS and how it never nearly happened because of pe people like me, doctors. In fact, there was a chap who was a TV doctor. He was the big TV doctor and he was the uh, uh, physician to the king. Uh, he said how awful it was and he didn't want to work for the communists and whatever and nearly won the argument. The BMA, bless them, were absolutely against it. They kept having, they call them plebiscites, but in essence they were votes as to whether they wanted to work for the state and... You know, Bevan came in and said he was going to stick the NHS through in six months. And, you know, five months down the line, the BMA was still 80% against it. So it was a huge achievement of his and very clever the way he did it. So that's a good story to tell. Uh, and then I'll just look at what we've done over 70 years. The, the, the heroes and the villains will be a bit of booing, a bit of cheering. But I think plenty to celebrate. I think we should still be proud of it. Um, but we've now got to fight for it as well as just fund it. I think people have to stand up and shout. And I think they're starting to do that. Absolutely. Um, great. One final question, which is something that I just ask every single person I interview for this podcast. Um, apart from your good self, who else would you recommend that people follow or check out online for good reporting and information on the NHS? Who do you like? Lots of follow? people. Clive Pedel, who started the National Health Action Party, is great. Rachel Clark is also very good. So she's an angry junior doctor. And look at who she follows as well. You'll get that whole cohort. Ben White is another one. Alison Pollock, who's the professor who's uh, mounting a judicial review with Stephen Hawking um, to challenge accountable care organisations. She's interesting and well worth following. Sean Linton, S-H-A-U-N Linton, he's from the Safety Investigation Officer from the Health Service Journal, and he often gets some good stories. There's a chap called Roy Lilly who sort of straddles both sides. He's, uh, he's a commentator and does some interesting stuff and some challenging stuff. He's interesting as well, so... There's a whole gamut there, but once you follow one of them and they give you suggestions of who to follow, you'll find out who the, <laughs> the revolutionaries are online. But lots of good stuff. Just don't. The only thing I say is I don't like hate. There are people on there, and I tweet stuff, and people say Jeremy Hunter, C-U-N-T, and I'm not really interested. I don't like the hateful aspect of politics. I think we should be able to sort this out with compassionate and rational debate. Big thanks to Phil for the chat. Um, as we mentioned, Dr Phil's health revolution is touring Shoreham, York, Wakefield, Exeter, Fareham, Margate, Halifax, Loughborough and Cambridge from the 24th of February to the 30th of March. And then his happy birthday NHS show is at the Merlin Theatre in Frome on the 15th of April and then the lovely Bristol Tobacco Factory on the 29th of April too. I love that venue. Um, you can find more details on all those things on his website at drphilhammond.com and he's also on Twitter at drphilhammond too. Um, I'll list all the people he recommends following on the Twitter and the Facebook pages over the next week because, well, there was a lot of them and right now I'm quite tired. Um, I've been all organised and I've got the next few weeks of interviews lined up uh, but with Tiny Dieb appearing in March I'm going to try and get as many done in advance as possible. So, as always, if you have someone you'd like to recommend I get on the show or a subject you'd like me to talk about please do drop me a line at Bro on Twitter, the Partly Political Broadcast group on Facebook or partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com or why not break into my home and leave everything untouched except for a message written with your finger on my shower door and then when I go for a wash I'll not see your message because I never look at the door in case there's evidence that someone's broken in and left me a weird message and that'd really creep me out so yeah email's bestest Brexit This is just a mini Brexit fallout today because I thought it would be useful to explain whether you can be in or out of the single market if you are out of the European Union because it turns out no one really has a clue, including quite a lot of people in politics. Now, you're probably already thinking, actually, when my other half unceremoniously dumped me because my breathing sounds made them angry, then I left the union and joined the single market. And if you are thinking that, then you're an idiot and that isn't what I'm talking about. Go comfort eat and join Tinder. What this is about is how both main parties, Dem Conservatives and Dem Labour, have both now said definitely that the UK will be out of the single market in March because to be in the single market means being in the union in some form or another. 
Theresa May and the Conservatives have said that loads, which of course is of no surprise, because while we still aren't 100% sure what sort of deal they do actually want, we do know if there was a delete the EU's number from our phone and have our friend answer, and then if they do try calling you, they can say you need to get out of their life or I'll mess you up, then they would go for that deal. Labour's stance has been a little bit more iffy, with some moments the single market being a thing that they're into, and then other moments something that they aren't into, and then it kind of depends on who you speak to, on what day, and overall, I'm still not sure that they really know what a single market is when they see one, or how to approach it safely without scaring it off. And then, this Sunday just gone, Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn said on ITV on Peston that he definitely, definitely doesn't back the idea of the UK staying in the single market, because, as he said, you can only be in the single market if you're in the EU. He then also said we wouldn't stay in the customs union, but we were looking to be part of a customs union. That's important, that there. You know, the A, the A, that bit, that is important. It's not the classic everyone knows it customs union, but you know, it's one of the others. Possibly supermarket own brand, maybe a knockoff called Customs Uniat or something like that. And then loads of people got angry with what he said and said he was wrong and that he didn't know what he was talking about. Meanwhile, SNP leader and your childhood friend's mum that you're always a bit scared of even in adulthood, Nicola Sturgeon, has said that the UK should definitely stay in the single market because she's actually done a Brexit impact report, which is amazing because no one else has and the Conservatives still don't really know what one is or whether you can eat it or not. And she says that the report says that we're all shat right up unless we stay in the single market. So, as far as I understand, and I should add that as a country that had membership of the EU has never left the EU before, all of this is up in the air like a particularly good or particularly bad jugglers act, depending on how you see it. But from March the 19th next year, we will leave the European Union, which means we give up the four freedoms of the EU, which include the single market, check, and the customs union, check. But, and this is a big Kardashian but, what we do next means we could have access to the single market and negotiate a customs uniat. Sorry, customs union. For example, Norway isn't in the EU and isn't in the single market as such, but it is part of the European economic area, so it has access to the single market where it can trade all its red trousers and trees when it likes, as long as it implements various bits of EU legislation, which, according to the Interbible Wikipedia, over 7,000 of which were in place by 2010. But you could also say Norway is in the single market if you wanted to, because some people do, even the BBC. But it does mean that Norway has no say in the politics of the single market, like like it would do if it was in the EU. Iceland has a similar deal as the Liechtenstein, which I'm still not sure is a country. And basically all of them can say uh, buy around and may get given around back by the EU, but can't say what they want in their round and so could just be given a pot of tar. There is also the CETA deal that Canada has with the EU, where the C doesn't actually stand for Canada. I know, right? Doesn't that make everything difficult? And that gives almost entire access to the single market, but not quite, as it eliminates 98% of tariffs and so still 2% of tariffs. And there's a lot of criticism of that deal, much like the previously proposed and rejected TTIP deal between the EU and the US, that it would only benefit big businesses and damage consumer and workers' rights. Will it? No idea, mate. The whole thing is so boring to read about. And it's all only provisionally in effect at the moment, so we'll kind of have to wait and see. You you do assume that even if it does go ahead and all those bad things happen, the Canadian government are going to sincerely apologise about it throughout because they're very nice like that. So by saying that we won't be in the single market, the idea might be that we won't be in the single market, but we will negotiate to have access to it. And similarly, not being in the customs union doesn't mean that we won't renegotiate a customs union that will be a lot like the customs union, only we won't be in the EU. And Barry271898 on Twitter with his union jackpick and a bio that says being driven out my own country by forints and tea drinker or whatever can't then go the undemocratically elected EU are still in charge because they'll see a different name and be confused and go to sleep. Essentially, it's a whole load of semantics issues, so no wonder some Labour supporters are angry as they've previously had issues with anti-semantics. Also though, according to recently resigned Trade Minister Lord Price, the Conservatives have put a lot of their efforts into keeping the trade privileges the EU had with third countries such as Korea, so when we become a third country, we can then just all hang out and trade in thirdsums. But he said because of this, the Department has spent zero time on potential deals with the other EU countries or the US or anywhere else, and that these deals with the third countries could probably be more complicated than they think and oh what about Ireland everyone's forgotten about Ireland there's a big thing about Ireland so I hope all of that has cleared things up for you no fair enough I mean it's almost as if the whole thing is quite complicated or something 
Oh, and Theresa May appointed Suella Fernandez as a new Brexit minister. And with her name like a really fun kids TV presenter, she is really fun because, you know, she's a hardline Brexiteer. Just leave right now, Brexiteer. Like, why haven't we left? Are we still in? Have we left yet? Oh, God, it's all taking ages. You know, that sort of fun. You know how fun? That sort of fun that in November of last year, Suella contradicted the government's promise that human rights would not be affected by Brexit fun, you know, by suggesting the EU Charter of Fundamental Rights is dropped after March the 19th, 2019, as it's too flabby with all its citizens' projections on eugenics and personal data and collective bargaining. Uh, what flab? What? You're saying it's 2018 and you haven't got on board with the shred your rights diet yet? Yeah, by getting rid of your protections as a human being, you can lose up to £6 a week by, you know, running from authorities that are trying to catch you for a crime that their algorithms believe you'll commit in a few years. No, sorry, that's Minority Report, but hey, it's kind of the same. Fun! More Brexit nonsense next week. And that's all for this week's Partly Political Broadcast. Uh, thank you so much for rejoining um, as we embark into whatever 2018 holds. And I'm hoping it's the door so we can run through it, escaping everything else that the year brings. I hope that wasn't too much for one show. Uh, there was too much to cram into this first episode. Uh, so hopefully we'll space out and we'll go back to some things over the next few weeks. Um, if you do enjoy this noise, then please do tell people about it. Subscribe and all the pod things and do a review or two where you can. I mean, really, anywhere will be fine. You know, a podcast site is good, but I'll also except um, things shaved onto the back of a llama or carved into the moon. Please send pics if you do either of those things. Um, please donate to the Patreon and the Kofi if you can, especially as I'll soon have a baby whose noise I'll need to block out somehow while doing recordings. I'm saying anything you donate won't help feed my baby. Uh, it will just definitely make me hire a studio where that baby won't be. And that is good parenting right there. Um, big thanks to Acast for hosting the show and to my brother The Last Skeptic for all the beats. This show will be back next week when I'll be looking at Theresa May's second cabinet reshuffle of the year which involved everyone staying in exactly the same positions that they're in only turning the other way round bye this week's show is brought to you by Theresa May's Avoidable Waste, a fun new family board game from Mattel. Spend hours throwing plastic bits at each other and seeing which ones they can dodge. Oh no, Billy's got his head stuck in one of those beer can things again and now he can't breathe. Theresa May's Avoidable Waste, fun for all the family, not suitable for children. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.